good afternoon and welcome to this Latrobe Asia webinar, Myanmar's military coup challenging democracy in Southeast Asia. I am Beck Strading, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. I would also like to extend uh, respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who are watching this webinar today. So part of our role at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. On the 1st of February this year, news of a military coup in Myanmar rapidly spread across the world. The country's military leaders justified the takeover by alleging voter fraud in the November elections which were held last year. So while large numbers of officials and advisers have been detained and social media and the internet have been blocked, demonstrations against military rule have also flourished across the country. So here today, we're here to talk about the implications of this move by the military. What are the driving factors behind the military's actions? What does this mean for Myanmar's long-term prospects as a democratic country? And what does it mean for Myanmar citizens? And what response should we expect from the international community? I'm delighted to be joined by our expert panel to unpack these crucial issues. So first, I would like to welcome Weiwei Nu, who is joining us from Washington, D.C. Weiwei is a peace, human rights and women's, uh, women's rights activist and the founder of the Women's Peace Network in Myanmar. Uh, welcome, Weiwei. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Our next guest is Christopher Lamb. Chris is the president of the Australia Myanmar Institute and an honorary associate professor at the University of Melbourne and former Australian ambassador to Myanmar. Welcome to you, Chris. Thank you, Vic. Thank you. And finally, our third panellist today is Hunter Marsden. Hunter is a PhD candidate at the Australian National University, a non-resident WSD Hunter Fellow at the Pacific Forum, and was previously a Harold Rosenthal Fellow at the US Embassy in Myanmar. Great to have you here, Hunter. Thanks, Beck. Happy to join. There will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the second half of this webinar, and for that we will be using the Q&A function. Uh, but for now, let's get straight into it. And Hunter, I would like to start with you. You've written quite a bit uh, on the recent events in Myanmar for various publications, so I'm hoping that you might be able to start us off with a bit of an explainer on what's happening because there's lots of information coming out, there's lots of news reports, everything's in flux. So what's going on and what are some of the driving factors? I mean, why uh, did the military decide to take over rule? Thanks, Beck. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'd first like to say uh, I'm speaking from uh, Nagatawal country, and I would like to acknowledge the Nagatawal people who are the traditional custodians of this land on which we are meeting and pay respect to the elders of Nagatawal nation, both past and present. So I'll start with the uh, first part of your question about uh, what has happened um, in the past two weeks. We've seen a flurry of events. On the early morning of February 1st, the military and security forces 
detained uh, the elected leaders, uh, mostly uh, from the National League for Democracy, which won the November 8th election resoundingly. Uh, it also went after uh, certain key activists from the 88 generation, such as Bin Konang, and civil society activists who could organize uh, dissent to the military coup. Um, later that day, the uh, Myanmar military TV channel Miyawati uh, News announced that the military had taken control and transferred all powers to uh, to the commander in chief, Minong Hlaing, uh, judiciary, executive, and legislative powers. A separate statement uh, the next day uh, said that the Tatmada or Myanmar military would hold elections uh, within the year and ensure that these were free and fair and return power to the elected government uh, following their elections. Uh, very soon after the February 1st coup, healthcare workers went on strike in a national civil disobedience movement campaign was launched, attracting hundreds of thousands of followers on Facebook. Uh, the regime ordered that the internet uh, be shut down and Facebook uh, be shut down for several days. Uh, and following this uh, February 6th internet outage, actually we saw protesters take to the streets the next day. These quickly gathered steam. So uh, over the last two weeks, they've really uh, spread across the country in impressive numbers. And uh, by the end of uh, Monday, I believe, we probably had over a million across the country collectively. Um, on February 9th, the first peaceful protester in Napida was shot uh, by uh, perhaps a live round, a rubber bullet. Um, I don't know if it's confirmed. Uh, she, she has since passed away from a head injury uh, caused by the uh, police. Uh, two other protesters were shot and killed in Mandalay last week uh, in protests, and the protests have not yet let up, uh, in fact, have only spread. Um, so the civil disobedience movement and protests are, are uh, really going strong. In response, the regime has uh, introduced a few measures, such as a cyber law to uh, basically target, round up, and, and uh, imprison anyone who has uh, expressed dissent online or shared uh, anti-coup messaging on social media or the internet. Um, and in the last two weeks, Minong Lang, the commander in chief, has set up a new cabinet uh, under what's what he's called the State Administration Council, um, appointing mostly uh, ex-military and uh, USDP party uh, officials, and uh, as well as a couple, interestingly, uh, ethnic political party um, uh, uh, candidates. So there in my mind, three uh, sort of overarching possible explanations for why the military launched this coup. Uh, the first is that the military really believes its uh, messaging that there was electoral fraud, that the National League for Democracy rigged the election in their favor, and uh, that the election of November 8th was not free and fair. Uh, the military has uh, repeatedly uh, made these allegations of election fraud and said that they are stepping in to uphold the 2008 constitution which they wrote. So they're trying to legitimize this coup as a constitutional uh, grab of power. The second explanation is, is the larger sort of underlying civil military tensions in the country, uh, that the military sees the NLD as a threat to its interests and its power. And finally, a third explanation I'd note is uh, Minong Hlaing, Commander-in-Chief's personal political ambitions. Um, my own read uh, on the situation is that it's probably a combination of the three factors. 
So the first um, that the military really believes its own propaganda about electoral fraud, I think it's worth taking seriously because of the uh, repeated claims that's made since November about uh, fraudulent voter lists. The military claimed that voter lists had 8 million irregularities or over 8 million uh, of a total voting population of 32 million. So that's a quarter of all voters uh, they say were uh, erroneous on the voter lists. Um, despite the fact that the Union Election Commission, which is appointed by the National League for Democracy, rejected these claims, the military has dug in on this. So I, I think it's worth acknowledging that they might be sincere and that they, they have started to believe their own propaganda that the election was fraudulent. Um, the second explanation that the military sees the National League for Democracy, and particularly Aung San Suu Kyi, as a threat to its interests, is, is partially believable. Uh, the NLD swept elections with an 83% win in November, uh, and the military's proxy party, the USDP, only picked up 34 seats. So the military had lost some ground, collectively speaking, it, within parliament. Uh, but at the same time, the 2008 constitution, which the military wrote, uh, under uh, uh, protects its own interests. Um, so in my mind, the NLD is not uh, really a threat to the uh, military's powers, um, and especially its control over three key ministries and a large portion of the economy. The third possible explanation uh, that Minong Lang's personal ambitions loom large here um, is, is compelling to me. And I think that there are reasons to uh, believe that he saw no road to continued power. Uh, he's supposed to retire on his 65th birthday in July. Uh, and without the uh, National Defense and Security Council convening before then, it's unclear how he would choose a successor. Um, there were rumors previously that he wanted to be president, perhaps seeing that he didn't have many options uh, to do so. He thought the time was uh, dwindling and his window of opportunity narrowing, so he stepped in to take power by force. Um, I'm happy to go into more of that in the Q&A, but I think it's best I leave it there for now. Yeah, that's really helpful, and I'm interested to hear what the uh, other panellists uh, have to say about these motivating uh, factors. But I'm also conscious, Hunter, that, you know, your area of expertise is Southeast Asia more broadly uh, and foreign policy. So I'm wondering, uh, just to, to put aside the sort of domestic stuff for the minute, because I wanted to ask you about how Southeast Asia responds to what's going on uh, in Myanmar. Myanmar's a bit of a tricky case for ASEAN uh, historically, and also China is a really important partner for Myanmar. Is this good or bad news for the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, so um, I'll sort of split that into two parts. The uh, ASEAN response has been mixed. Indonesia and Malaysia have been actively calling for a special ASEAN meeting. Um, and Indonesia in particular has been has been active in sort of leading this uh, charge to discuss the Myanmar coup. Um, as I saw it yesterday, Indonesia's foreign minister is actually going to fly to Myanmar now uh, to hold a special meeting and has uh, the, the Indonesian Ministry of Foreign Affairs has uh, reportedly sort of suggested a, a political resolution wherein the military will uh, hold elections and return power to the duly elected government, although this would come as a major compromise and illegal compromise in the eyes of protesters. Um, so I think it's worth acknowledging that. Other countries, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, and the Philippines have referred to uh, the coup as Myanmar's internal affairs and don't want to um, see ASEAN interfere in these countries' uh, affairs because they 
are also authoritarian countries and uh, don't want to set a precedent for ASEAN um, uh, looking into their own um, operations and, and uh, dictatorships. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning that Brunei's commander in chief, Brunei is currently the chair of ASEAN, uh, held a Zoom call with Vice Senior General So Win um, just a few days ago to discuss Minong Hlaing's participation in a March conference of ASEAN defense uh, ministers or uh, chiefs of defense forces. Um, so ASEAN, uh, again, has had a mixed reaction. China, for its part, uh, seems to speak in broad terms to be very irritated with the coup. Um, China had actually established fairly good working relations with Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy, the elected leadership, uh, and had major investment projects uh, in, in the works across the country and invested a lot diplomatically in that relationship. The Myanmar military, for its part, is actually pretty distrustful of China uh, for its influence over ethnic armed groups in the north of the country, as well as some of the strategic implications of its uh, infrastructure projects like Jiaopu Special Economic Zone and the, the pipelines across the country and its uh, designs for access to the Indian Ocean. So I think it's worth noting that uh, China has made, uh, has insisted repeatedly that it had nothing to do with the coup. There's a swirl of uh, online discussion about this within Myanmar, particularly on, on Twitter, um, that perhaps uh, China had advanced notice of the coup because Foreign Minister Wang Yi was actually in Naypyidaw to hold meetings with Commander-in-Chief Minong Hlaing in January, just a few weeks before the coup. Uh, I have so far seen no evidence to support the fact that, or the hypothesis that China had anything to do with this coup or advanced notice of it. Uh, but Minong Hlaing did bring up the uh, claims of electoral fraud at the time. So it's possible that he had tried to suggest uh, what his next political move would be. Um, but it seems to me from all we're seeing and the fact that China allowed a UN Security Council statement on the Myanmar coup uh, calling for the release of Aung San Suu Kyi uh, to go ahead, I, th I think indicates that Beijing is actually quite unhappy with the Myanmar generals right now. That's really interesting. Um, look, I, I might, uh, Chris, I'll, I'll come back to this question in a moment, uh, but I did want to come circle back around to the domestic issues. Uh, and Weiwei, I wanted to bring you into the conversation here. Uh, what is your sense of the community sentiment uh, and public opinion? Hunter mentioned the sort of civil disobedience movement. Is this a deeply unpopular move by the military in your sense? I mean, how widespread are these protests and are people fearful of retaliation? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the questions and thank you for that um, great overview, Hunter. So um, military, uh, in, in my uh, observations, I think military make this very calculated move, very planned. Um, the uh, election fraud allegation was not actually, um, you know, it, it was actually, I guess it was actually planned, you know. So I, many of us do not believe that there has been like widespread and systematic electoral fraud. You know, there may be some electoral, I mean, voter irregularities, but it might not be as uh, the military has been accusing. So, but yet, you know, they have planned this coup for a long time uh, for maybe for many, many motivations among them. It may be, 
yes, you know, as Hunter said, maybe may online general, uh, the personal motivations uh, to be uh, to take control over the over the country as well as to uh, keep sustain his businesses and the military businesses in in general. Uh, however, the response from the public it's been quite extraordinary. So I am sure that he was not expecting this big uh, and extraordinary reactions from the public. And it started from these civil servants, civil civil servants, and and uh, a, a CDM movement uh, initially from uh, from um, uh, from uh, doctors um, and other civil servants, and then the next days, um, the 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 young people, labor activists, uh, youth activists came out. Then following they, they uh, the 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 protest has grown and it's day by day the protest uh, is growing. So now we have one of the biggest uh, protests in all time uh, um, on 22nd of February, where we mark a uh, call that day as two five days, two five twos, uh, five twos revolution, spring revolutions, where uh, local media reported that uh, Maybe 20 million people have joined the protests across the country, but I'm not sure the the, the verification, the, the validity of the number, but some local media reported as 20 million people across the country, over 300 uh, township has joined the protests on, um, on 22nd February. Um, however, we also, have been seen over the past three weeks, uh, the um, increasing intimidation threat by the military in many ways. Yes, we had uh, a number of killings, shot dead, and then we have now almost 700 uh, arrests. And um, we, we have this the military uh, deploying the most notorious um, um, military unit, uh, including light infantry divisions, 33, and, you know, at nighttime rate and, and creating chaos and instability or uh, escalating fears among the, among the public by many forms of threats and intimidation. Despite of all of this, you know, people come out People continue to be, come out of the street and continue to protest against against the uh, military, and they are fearful. Of course, they are fearful of uh, retaliations. They know what can how the military can be brutal against them, and some of them even have their um, you know even have their uh, blood types on their arms uh, written. They prepare. They are prepared. You know, they are prepared. Young people in Myanmar today are prepared to have such retaliations, but they are committed. They are dedicated to take this military down by any means they can. So now it's not just the uh, civil servants, but it's the entire country, the entire younger generations with many forms of campaign, many forms of campaign that include the uh, boycott, the campaign on boycotting the military's products. So the protesters, the young people in Myanmar are desperately trying to stop the military and trying to disturb the governance systems, including economy, 
and all other sector. And I think this is uh, astonishing. It is something that incredible to see how people, uh, to see how people of Myanmar hate military dictatorship and military institutions as a whole. I think it's really interesting the point that you made about the, the first, this was planned and also that people were prepared. Now, that might not be a message that's really um, getting through in the Western media coverage on this. This isn't something that just spontaneously happened. I think that's really interesting. But, I mean, you're a human rights activist. What are your main concerns now about the human rights situation in Myanmar and uh, moving forward? Yeah, so I think uh, two things. One, you know, we know how military dictatorship is look like. We lived through that. And many people know, many older generation know, younger people today, they have more, they have uh, reached the, uh, to the globe. You know, they, they, they make connection to the world. And now they see the, what freedom look like, they understand, and they don't want to go back to the military uh, dictatorships. Um, however, you know, uh, like, Knowing what military can be look like, we are we have we are already started seeing the some of these repressive and uh, brutal activities against the uh, public, uh, including um, you know like from the internet shutdown to the um, and making directive to uh, to to repeal this draconian um, laws so that they. Uh, take away people's privacy, uh, freedom of speech, expressions and assembly uh, and, and you know, public protections in general. We didn't have much, but now they're trying, they're trying all these decisions and directives to remove all of this. And, um, you know, the arbitrary arrest, extrajudicial killing, uh, all of these are started, already started. And we will see it will escalate further once they are able to normalize the coup and legitimize the their 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 uh, their coup. So we will see, you know, escalations of these human rights violations, repressions in the ethnic areas as well, including in Rakhine State. So the second thing is about, you know, this is the military that committed genocide against the Rohingya crimes against humanity and war crimes against other ethnic communities. And I think, you know, this is, this is terrifying, you know, to let these generals to run the government, the country again. And what we are, you know, we, we need to be ready to see recurrence of such uh, international gross, uh, hum, uh, gross crimes, you know, that is what we are heading to if we're not able to stop the military. That is what I am uh, frustrated the most about. And, you know, first and most importantly, we cannot let these genocide suspects or cr criminal to, to rule the country. And it will be appalling for the world to let these people to rule the country without holding them on their criminal accountability. Well, that's a really good point about the international responsibilities. And Chris, of course, um, former ambassador uh, for Australia to Myanmar, uh, I saw that you uh, wanted to respond to some of what Hunter was saying about Southeast Asia and China. So I wanted to get your views about international community responses. I mean, how should democratic countries such as Australia 
respond to the coup? Uh, and what are the kind of implications for the Southeast Asian region in your view? Can I start by with uh, the, the issue of where we are going to, because yep. that's what the implications for the international community have to be based on. Yep. In my view, one of the central reasons why this intervention took place from the army, and I should say that I prefer not to call it a coup. I, I see a coup as something which has happened and is finished. It's final. I don't think it is that. I, I think it is something that we are still working to understand, and it is an intervention or a takeover, but it's not yet a coup. And the coups that I'm used to in parts of South America and elsewhere are final, and that's it. But this is not final. And as we've heard, and as Weiwei herself has said very clearly, the, the mobilization of the general public has been enormous. And that will continue. And that's what will guide the way people in Myanmar will react to what's happened. And that's why people like the Indonesian foreign minister are going there, because this public outrage is there. And I think that's where you come to the future. I think that the two main reasons why this took place were Minong Hlaing looking after his own future and people around Minong Hlaing looking at the damage which the, the huge majority obtained by the NLD in the elections was likely to do to, to Thun Shui's 2008 constitution. That constitution, with its 25% of the seats in the parliament for the army, with guaranteed ministries for the defence forces, that was under threat. It was very clear to me from talking to people after the elections and before the 1st of February, that a lot of people thought this was such a big majority that the NLD would be able to get away with their plan to undermine the military's place in the, in the country's governance. And they didn't want that to happen at any price. And so in a sense, the, the, the belief in, in, uh, uh, in the history of the country that the Tupmador have sold to themselves was, was faulty and they knew it and they had to try to forestall it. So without going further down that line and going to the, the way the international community and the others should uh, handle the situation they now have, I think the implications for democracy in Myanmar as a result of this uh, action, this takeover, are actually very good. And it's surprising to hear such a thing. I think that the outrage within the country has now been demonstrably huge and will remain that. And the, the fact that some of the things are based around uh, strange uh, astrological signals coming from a date like 22, 20, 21, 1, all these things, they produce these, these astrologies that people will believe and that people in the army will also believe, and they will see what sort of things come from that, and they will see that it's not only public outrage, it's also something coming from the stars that they need to worry about. There will be people at the senior levels of the army, very senior levels of the army, who will worry about what Minong Hang has done. They'll worry about that and they'll start looking for a compromise that might not involve Minong Hlaing. I think that's what we have to start looking for. And when that comes, the NLD negotiators will be looking at what needs to be done about the constitution to take it further forward. And I think therefore that the, the, the likely outcome in the medium term, I don't mean years away, but in the medium term is going to be quite good for democracy in the country. I also take a little bit of heart, I think, from the fact that the Administrative Council has, has uh, fired the Chairman of the Elections Commission, who produced the result we've just seen, but replaced him with the man who chaired the Election Commission for the 2015 elections, which were actually quite well conducted. And that's where the NLD got its big majority, from the, its first big majority 
from those elections. This man is an ex-general himself, Tine, but uh, at the time he was thought to have done a, a quite good job of chairing the election commission. So I'm not worried about that. Now, you asked me then about the international reaction and what other countries should do. Uh, the reference has already been made to Brunei. What I put my hand up about before was China. I'm sure from the people I've talked to, including within China, that the Chinese did not know that this was coming. The, the reference to Wang Yi going to Myanmar a couple of weeks before the election was something that I th was very surprised about at the time because his stated purpose in going on the way back from a trip elsewhere was to congratulate the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi on winning the election. And he saw other national leaders while he was there, including the commander in chief, which would be a normal thing to do. But his primary purpose was to meet Aung San Suu Kyi and congratulate her on the election and then look for ways in which China and Myanmar would continue to work together into the future. And I think that's a fair reading of why he was there. I don't actually agree with him going there. I don't think you congratulate people on winning elections until you've actually won them, namely taken power. But that's, that's for another thing. Now, other countries in the international community, I think we're seeing that response. The, the, the Indonesian foreign minister going there, the discussions there have been about ASEAN meetings and all this are all about how to bring Myanmar into, into ASEAN community exercises on a, a, a right and proper basis. One of the reasons why they appointed this administrative council, Min Aung Lang, appointed as foreign minister, the man who was foreign minister until the, the 26, 2016 takeover by NLD, was because he's known by these people and he's thought by, by the people in the army to be a bridge to that time. It won't work. It won't work in the foreign ministry. It won't work anywhere. I know that a lot of people who are in senior positions in the previous government, but who are inherited from the government before that of President Thein Sein, were out there in the CDM demonstrations. On Monday, this magic day with the 22nd of the 2nd, 2222, there were a lot of people who are people with that heritage, that, that background, out there taking part in the demonstrations. The countries continued to function in lots of very strange ways. Sure, the internet was shut down and then it reopened and then it shut down again and then it reopened. But the Myanmar people, guided by the youth, by Gen Z, or should I say Z for this purpose, are, are the ones who actually understand how to use the internet. They're much better at that than people are in Australia. Australia has already shown through its negotiations with Facebook that it can't function without Facebook. Myanmar knows how to function with these things. They were without them forever until 2013 when uh, President Thein Sein reopened all these things and made SIM cards cheap. They know how to work with the, with the world without the internet. And I've seen some of the things that they're doing. The communication between people in Myanmar as these demonstrations are organised and people are out there in the streets is wonderful. It's very inspiring and it's thanks to the youth that that's the case. And so going back to the beginning of the point, about the longer-term implications. The youth have got this inspiration. They know how to use these tools, and I'm confident that we will get past that and that Min Aung Hlaing will be consigned to the dustbin of history before much longer. So, Chris, can I, uh, if you were the uh, ambassador at the moment, what kind of advice would you be giving to your minister about what Australia should be doing in, this, uh, with, in responding to what's happened in Myanmar? I've uh, said to people that my primary advice is don't listen to people who say that the aid program should be cancelled. 
the aid program should be strengthened and increased, and it should be moved into the hands of the youth, civil society. There, not through government, but, but out to those organizations and, and let them get the strength from our support that they need. That strength is not going to come from words and, and microphone statements on Parliament House steps. It's going to come from action there, and it should come through civil society and, and especially to the youth. And in our Australian Myanmar Institute, we are looking at how best we can support youth in Myanmar, but also the Myanmar youth here in Australia. Interesting. So I might uh, just, Hunter, I might bring you in here because uh, one of the things that Chris said uh, was this idea that the constitution may have actually been under threat. Uh, is that something that uh, you have seen in your analysis of the situation? And also, do you share the, the kind of, I guess, a bit of optimism about uh, the long-term implications for democratic pro uh, progress, given the, the sheer amount of uh, activism that, that, that's going on in the country? Uh, thanks, Beck. Um, so I, I agree with uh, just about everything that uh, Chris said, um, and I uh, especially share his um, feelings on how we've seen uh, a broader uh, movement behind the CDM in, in support of uh, the uh, elected government, the NLD's return to power and against the military um, and its intervention, as, as uh, Chris termed it. Uh, the only point I would quibble with uh, is, you know, in my own reading, um, I'm not sure that the NLD's uh, majority re really posed um, a threat to the military's constitution. Uh, you know, uh, the NLD tried that in 2019 uh, to amend the constitution, which requires a 75% vote. So the military's 25% of seats that are mandated by the constitution essentially provide a complete roadblock to that. Uh, only several uh, relatively minor constitutional amendments did pass. Uh, so I'm not sure how the NLD's resounding win as a, you know, re resounding it was, but I'm not sure how that would pose a new challenge uh, distinct from the NLD's 2015 election, which saw a similar, if slightly smaller number of seats granted to the NLD. Um, I still think that the military had all the advantages with its constitution in place and it was uh, would have been able to prevent the NLD's efforts to reform its constitution. That's sorry, I was only going to comment on, on your uh, question about optimism. You know, in the, in the short term, I'm actually very anxious to see how the military responds to further protests. So I'm optimistic about the sense of national unity that really informs the protesters on the streets uh, and inspired to see how uh, organized, they are, <coughs> especially on social media, and um, just the sheer numbers in the streets. I mean, if you look at the photos um, going around Twitter, the uh, hundreds of thousands of protesters in each city and around the country, from Rakhine State to Kachin State uh, to Irrawaddy, uh, we're seeing just an incredible swelling of opposition to the regime, which is very, truly impressive. Um, but the military's history of uh, crackdowns on coups in the past, if you look to 1988 and 2007, when we saw uh, nationwide protests against uh, the military has been uh, bloody and that consistency and its ruthlessness and its response to me is extremely worrying. Um, so I think that in some ways the military has backed itself into a corner, especially with its insistence on electoral fraud, despite the fact that the country says we elected the National League for Democracy, we want Aung San Suu Kyi to represent us, not the military. They don't see this power grab as legally justified. Uh, I, I'm not sure I see uh, many off-ramps or de uh, options for de-escalation. Uh, the military 
is not known for uh, de-escalation or backing down, and uh, I fear what it's capable of if uh, it doesn't see um, sort of a face-saving avenue to political resolution. Now, we do have a lot of questions in the Q&A, which um, I'll get to, and uh, Chris, you'll be able to respond to that uh, during the, the Q&A. But I just before we, we do that, I just wanted to ask Weiwei, I mean, what are your views on the long-term democratic future of Myanmar? Um, it's nice to hear both of your uh, views, uh, Chris and Hunter. Um, you know, knowing the understanding the military in Myanmar, I don't want to be that optimistic at this point. Uh, it is too early to be optimistic. I don't think they planned to return um, the power anytime soon. And by seeing all the move that they have uh, in the past three weeks, all these, the, you know, like upside down change of the governance, and um, and that has been that has that's give you know already give uh, a signal that they don't plan to return uh, the power or the, the reverse situations anytime soon. And I think that is why it is very very critical. Like young people, people of Myanmar are craving, are they are doing everything they can to to take this military down. But the world is not along with us yet. So with that, we need to have both side by side together so that we will be able to reverse the situation. Otherwise, I wouldn't be any, uh, I wouldn't be overly optimistic on democratic future or even, uh, you know, on, uh, on uh, other issues. So what we need is, yes, the US put a little bit of sanctions and then EU today, uh, UK and the, the Canada, and then EU today announced uh, the, the, the cut in development aid uh, to government directly and uh, direct, redirecting them to the civil society and young people, uh, youth groups in Myanmar. So I think these are great steps, but we need to see a more collective uh, international response. And we haven't seen anything from the um, from the Australia substantially yet, apart from the call yesterday, the other day. So Australia has a very strong relationship with Myanmar economically and diplomatically, and uh, even militarily. There are many, many ways that Myanmar and Australia has ties um, already. I mean, ha has been like uh, a, a engagement and all of this uh, business and other ties. And, you know, it has, it, there has to be something um, you know, need to be done. And I agree on the uh, diplomat, uh, the development aid and any sort of development aid should not go to the military for, um, you know, at all. And it should redirect to the civil society groups. At the same time, we want to see Australia at some point standing strong with the government, with the people of Myanmar, and at least, you know, try to stop some of the direct um, military, uh, the businesses that uh, that is, uh, you know, that has tied to the Myanmar military's uh, businesses, like uh, Myanmar Economic Holding or you know, MEHL or MEC and other military military businesses. I think, you know, th those kind of review and actions is required. At the same time, we're calling for a more, uh, you know, international um, 
collective response to uh, to these situations by uh, through sanctions and through other diplomatic pressures, as well as UN Security Council, the statement was not enough. You know, people are calling, even calling for peacekeeping force. I mean, it's not realistic, but what I'm saying is giving a picture of what people are, how people uh, hate the military and how they want to change this situation now. So, you know, we are calling for reconvening uh, the UN Security Council and adopting a stronger resolution that include global arms embargo, and um, and also even a referral of the situations of Myanmar to ICC. I don't know why people undermine the suffering of the people in Myanmar. I don't know why people uh, don't take seriously about the fact that we have genocide crimes against humanity. These are ongoing. These are not, a, this, I mean, they happen in a large scale and it's still ongoing. And these are something that we must stop immediately while, as we talk about military dictatorship. And, and unless we are able to, uh, you know, step up on it and face the reality and, you know, take a hush uh, at that, we're not going to see any kind of democratic future in Myanmar anytime soon. Uh, so I think, you know, this is very important. On the other hand, yes, people are motivated and, you know, we are seeing some level of uh, solidarity and understanding that the fact that military is a common enemy. However, we need to understand this military is very, very good at dividing people. Mm. You know, we are seeing a tendency uh, for the military to scapegoat Rohingya again. We are already seeing this likelihood in you know, a possibility there. And this is very dangerous path we are heading to. And that is why we need, uh, you know, uh, a radical response at this point. We, I don't think any, uh, like, yes, the, the ASEAN foreign minister is uh, visiting tomorrow, but if, if she's meeting with only military and coming back in within one hour, I don't know what kind of, you know, actually uh, change will bring apart from the validating and, and legitimizing the coup. So it might be a good opportunity, Chris, uh, to get your responses uh, to what our, um, our panellists have, have just said in response to uh, your previous comments, but also uh, bringing in some of the questions that we have uh, in the Q&A because there does seem to be uh, quite a, a focus on the international community, including this question from Christina. Uh, does Australia have any direct ties to the military, which might be of use in understanding and dealing with the situation uh, in Myanmar? The thing about Australia that I spent a lot of time when I was ambassador trying to make people understand is that Australia is a country in the Southeast Asian region. It is not a country like Denmark or Canada, a million miles away, and able to stand up there and say whatever it likes about a place which it hardly knows where it is. We know very well where it is. We are one of the first countries to have an embassy in Rangoon, as it was then called, in the early 1950s, and we've been there ever since. Because of that, and going to the point about the military, we have known people in the military forever. When I was there as ambassador, and when I was there much earlier, as a young diplomat in the early 70s, I knew people in the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, and I still do. And I've tried to maintain all those links so that I had a place to which I could go if I had something like this to say. And I had, and I don't really want to go into this now, but I had a part 
in the negotiations that took place in 1989 about the electoral law that was used for the 1990 election, and that was with people in the army, in the, in the military government at the time, and I'm proud of what we did. And we need to keep those kinds of links open and active. We also need to know what's happening inside the military and who thinks what about whom. I know there are people in the military now who are not at all happy about the idea that General Minong Lang is making himself rich at the country's expense and that this uh, takeover has in part or allegedly something to do with that. So I think we need to maintain those kinds of links. On the other hand, there are calls for Australia to pull out all its military relationship. Our military relationship is basically training. Training, and, and I look at India as an example country on this, India's training program with the Myanmar Tapmador is a very good thing. It teaches them about international humanitarian law and those things. And I would maintain that, but I would do it through a body like the International Committee of the Red Cross rather than directly, but it's a matter of nuance. As for the other point about uh, the public outcry and will that have any impact? One of the things that I also thought contributed to the takeover was the realization from the elections that the people in the ethnic areas had voted for the NLD. There was a widespread belief in, the, in some governing circles that these ethnic areas would splinter off and vote for their own parties and perhaps create a situation in the new parliament which would make it possible to see the NLD not in the significant governance position it was in from 2016 onwards. The realization that that did not happen and, and that the NLD would be stronger still was also a realization that the strength of public demand for, an, for the constitution to evolve, if I can put it that way, was there. It was the thing that they had to overcome, otherwise it would just continue to grow. So I think that all those things are part of this equation. So the, there was a, the issue of, uh, of the military and Aung San Suu Kyi, she, and I remember this very well from my time there in 1988 uh, when the, the uprising took place and what happened after that. I remember a time when Aung San Suu Kyi, at the time when the NLD was still really a, a dream, it wasn't really built as a political party, she stood in front of a big crowd in front of the Shwedagon Pagoda in the park there and she saw soldiers around the crowd watching and she decided that she should now confront this situation. So she pointed to the soldiers over the big crowd and said, now's the time for you to decide whether you're from Nawin's army or my father's army. And that debate is still there. It's very important to have all these things in place. And then you come back to personality. So she is her father's daughter. Minong Hlaing is the man in charge of the army. Who's the boss? I think that's one of the underlying points in this takeover. Very interesting. Uh, now, Hunter, I might come back to you. We've got a question. Uh, we haven't really talked about the role of the United States in all of this, and I think this is something that you would be able to uh, contribute to. But one of the questions from Victor is about whether the situation, if it deteriorates in Myanmar, do you think that the narrative of the international community will shift from, uh, you know, having these uh, statements of urging the military to restrain from using violence? Or do you think that there, there might be, um, you know, the use of more coercive measures, uh, thinking not just in terms of sanctions, but military action and peacekeeping forces? 
Uh, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, <clears throat> so far, I think the uh, Biden administration has played this one pretty carefully uh, and pretty well, in my opinion, given its relatively limited leverage. Um, U.S. has uh, doesn't have a ton of business or investment in the country, and so economic coercion will only have limited impact unless it's coordinated with other partners and allies, uh, which I do see the administration making efforts to do. So I think critical uh, in this effort will be working with the likes of Japan and Singapore in particular, uh, who are major investors, uh, Singapore being the largest investor in Myanmar, to uh, make sure that they have targeted sanctions that are coordinated and uh, actually do impact on the military's interests and start to pinch their uh, business interests in particular. Um, so, so far the uh, Biden administration has announced targeted sanctions against members of this new state administration council um, and senior generals. Uh, it already had uh, sanctions on a couple of them tied to uh, the Rohingya crisis, including uh, senior general Min Aung Klang. I think it's left open the possibility of expanding sanctions um, against uh, businesses associated or uh, affiliated with the military, um, such, such as Myanmar Economic Holdings Limited and Myanmar Economic Corporation, uh, which makes sense to me. I think it will probably uh, allow itself some time to assess how events play out in the coming days, especially if there is uh, more bloodshed. I think that targeted sanctions will certainly expand. Um, so I, I think so far it's preserved some options for negotiation or dialogue. Uh, in the early days after the coup, uh, it was um, reported that um, Joe Biden uh, instructed General, uh, sorry, Chief of the Joint Staffs, uh, General Mark Milley, and uh, uh, Minister, sorry, uh, being in Australia, Secretary of Defense Austin to reach out to counterparts in uh, the Tatmada. Uh, as far as I've seen, those uh, communication links have gone nowhere because we don't have uh, extensive contacts in the military. So I think it's important to work with partners that do, uh, and especially with uh, sanctions coordination. I think it'll, it'll only be effective if uh, we get our partners and allies on side with these uh, sanctions, uh, if necessary, by using threats of secondary sanctions uh, under the International Economic Powers Act that uh, Joe Biden uh, used in the init initial announcement of sanctions. Yeah, sanctions are always a little bit risky as well in that they don't always, they're not always effective. And that's one of the important things, certainly in the literature about sanctions, is that they don't always target who uh, we're trying to, to target. Uh, but Weiwei, uh, I wanted to ask you this question from Nick Osbaldiston. Hi, Nick. How have the armed forces of the ethnic groups such as the Karen responded to this, given that there was already quite heightened tension before them, uh, between them, sorry, beforehand? It seems like, you know, I said it repeatedly because the, the, the coup is not an accidental, it's a, it's a well-planned. They have actually reached out to the ethnic communities before uh, February 1st. Um, so there has been several communications with the different ethnic communities, different ethnic armed groups, um, and uh, it's appeared to me that uh, not many have convinced with the offer that military has offered to the ethnic community. So we have just seen the um, uh, military offensive in Kachin state uh, yesterday, and then the ongoing civil war, uh, ongoing um, the, the fight in, in Karan state, 
um, at least uh, 200 people have been uh, displaced to over 200 people have displaced over the past uh, one or two weeks. Um, so the, the fightings are ongoing and, um, and the, the, the deep downside of it is that the, the military has dam brought damage to the country so much and they've never fulfilled their promises. Uh, that's their history and that's what they're well known for. So I don't, therefore, you know, they're not receiving uh, support from the ethnic uh, arms groups now. So the, the, the different armed groups, uh, RCSS, KIA, KIA uh, KIO and others has uh, released uh, their statement objecting the, the coup, the military coup and, um, and the 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 peace uh, uh, peace uh, representative groups uh, also has released announced uh, uh, the the statement the other day uh, two days ago uh, on their positions that they're going to support the protesters and CDMs and they are going to uh, call for the uh, uh, of course the the release of detainees uh, and political leaders and as well as the, uh, the arch the, the the military to to reverse the situation, to return the power. And also, you know, we have to understand that this is not that the fight between the, the military government, uh, military and then Dong Sang Suu Kyi civilian government. The Burmese problem, Burma, the crisis in Myanmar is much bigger than the fight between these two leadership. So that we have, you know, five, six decade, decades long, uh, the civil war and the, one of the longest civil war uh, on earth we, we, are, we, we, we are carrying, right? And these other fundamental problems has to be addressed and the ethnic communities and younger progressive um, civil society leaders and, and, and political leaders are calling for a more, um, you know, the, a more drastic change that includes a constitutional change uh, to the uh, truly democratic building establishments a truly democratic federal union. And that is more, uh, you know, what the country is needed for long term. And that is what the many communities who have suffered for, for so long are calling for at this point. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the militarism, military dictatorship will not promise that future. Mm. That is why I think majority, but vast majority of the ethnic groups are standing um, against the military. Such a complex picture. Uh, but, Chris, one of the things that we haven't talked about, and this is a question from Jamie, uh, is Sean Turnell. Of course, Aung San Suu Kyi is one of her advisors, is an Australian, uh, and, has, and has been arrested. So I might get your views on uh, his arrest and continued detention. I would be surprised if one of the key subjects for discussion between uh, the Australian Deputy Chief of Defence Staff and the deputy to Mel Hwang hadn't been Sean Turnell. Nobody, including his family, really understands what it is that he's done that's led to him being taken. We can make a lot of guesses, and maybe they're good guesses, but I, and I won't go into them now, but they're not reasons for taking him in. Uh, if, if I were a Myanmar military strategist, I would be saying to Mel Hwang, it was a terrible idea to take him in, because what you've done is to enliven Australia to our Myanmar situation on a long-term basis. If you hadn't done that, the Australians would have gone back to sleep 
or they would have concentrated on their own uh, political problems in Parliament House, for example, right now. That's what the news would have been. But Sean Turnell has made Myanmar a headline item every day mm. in this country, and it will stay that way until something's done about it. Mm. So I don't have an answer to when he's going to be released, but I would think that everybody who cares to think about this in a strategic way in the Myanmar military would, would be saying it was a big mistake to take him in, let him go. Find some suitable trigger which can justify him being released, an act of goodwill, who knows what, but do something and get out, get him out of the country. That's what I'd be saying. Mm. That's really... Uh, sorry, just a very quick update on that. I did see last night the ABC reported that uh, Vice Admiral uh, Johnston did uh, stress uh, that he demanded, Australia demands, uh, Sean Turnell's release uh, in his phone call with uh, So Win. That's, That's very right. Some of the some of the first reporting of that call uh, actually came out of Myanmar sources, which I find very weird. The whole thing, perhaps, it shows a lack of concentration on these issues in some parts of the Australian government, uh, or about how to, how to get news out. Mm, certainly. Uh, so we we don't have much time left. Uh, we do have some more questions. Please feel free to email. Uh, asia at latrobe.edu.au and we can pass some of those questions on to the panel. Uh, but Weiwei, just before uh, you head off, I'll, I'll save the last question for you, uh, which is what can ordinary people do about this, whether it's in Australia or the United States? What can we do? Uh, thank you. Thank you for this question too. I think it's a, it's a great question. So we need people power, you know, at this time. Um, so governments are really difficult to shake. And um, so they're not going to respond until you respond. And I, I also feel like uh, the, the Myanmar military is quite confident that they will have, uh, you know, some um, support from the uh, some, you know, uh, governments uh, in, in the neighbor around. So they're quite confident uh, on that. So what we need is you taken on you know as as our people of Myanmar going out of the street I don't I wouldn't want and urge you to go out of the street all the time uh, and protest but at least what you can do is you know learn about the situations more raise awareness uh, through your social media through it through, through your mainstream media and write to your government your representative to take actions against the Myanmar military and, you know, again, we have to remember this military is the military committed international core crimes like genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. You know, we cannot just ignore the fact that it's true. And we have to acknowledge that crime and hold the, these people accountable. Otherwise, we will see recurrence of the uh, crimes. Um, so, yeah, write to your, uh, you know, leaders, you write to your representative, your government uh, to take actions against Myanmar military and try to support Myanmar people, um, you know, activists and young people in on the ground. Um, try, you know, provide your skills and your knowledge and your time to, to, to the people and, you know, support financially if you can. So, you know, I think uh, there are many, many ways you can do, but nothing is less, you know, so you can do anything you want, you're comfortable with and with their ability. 
Thank you. I think that's a good place for us to end. Um, we are, have unfortunately run out of time uh, for today's webinar, uh, but it has been a really rich uh, and interesting and important discussion. So I would like to thank Hunter, Weiwei and Chris for contributing your time today. Uh, and of course, thank you to our audience uh, who have offered a lot of questions that unfortunately we were not able to get to today. Uh, but this webinar has been recorded Recorded. If you've registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they're ready. Uh, our next Latrobe Asia event uh, is another webinar on could Taiwan be the next global flashpoint? And that is next week on the 3rd of March at 12pm Melbourne time. Uh, but please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. So thank you again.